Today we are beginning a two-part message, and I'm recalling you back to Vision Weekend, which is the last weekend of January, because I want to take a couple of weeks, and I want to talk to you about the church. Guys, listen to me. Jesus loves his church. Do you know that? If you say, if you're here and you say you love Jesus, but you don't like his church, I'm going to tell you something. You've got a problem. Because Jesus is in love with his church. What does the scripture say? Let's look at it together. It says, Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her. That's how much he loves her. Now, who is the church? Is the church a building? No, who is the church? The church is the people who confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, if you ask me today, you say, Shane, who is in charge of the church? Who's in charge of North Point? Who is the head pastor of North Point Church? Who would I say? I would say Jesus Christ. And you should say Jesus Christ. Look at how Hebrews puts it, for example. It says that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. By the way, the Greek word there is poimen, it's pastor. He is the great pastor of the sheep. In 1 Peter, it says that one day he's going to come and he's going to look at how guys like me did as stewards of the church, as pastors. Look at what it says. He said, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you've operated in the context of the church. But who's the pastor of the church? Come on. Jesus is. All the while, listen, I'm aware that in the United States of America right now, the state of the church is not that good. How many of you know that? As of 2020, did you know that only 47% of Americans actually claim to belong to a church? Did you realize that? Now, this is what used to be called a Christian nation. If you were to ask 20 years ago how many people say they belong to a church, the statistic was 70%. Look at how it's declined in the last 20 years, according to Gallup. And right now, typical church attendance is only about 85% of the pre-pandemic levels. In fact, there was a survey that was done by the, American, um, by the Institute for the American Family, and it says that right now, Post-pandemic, it's, it's still not back to where it was. It's down not, from, not at 34%, but right now it's down to 28%. That's what the studies are showing average church attendance is like. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the earliest church over the next couple of weeks, and I want to ask the question, what is it about the church that made such a difference in the world? What accounted for its growth? Because, friends, I'm going to tell you, the church grew. In fact, one historian said this. I'm going to put this on the screen for you to see. He said, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. Now that was first century Christianity. And you wonder, how did it do that in that culture? Because do you guys know what Greco-Roman culture was like? It was a dark culture. 
In fact, I'll give you an example. There was a letter that's come down to us, and it was presented in a, in, and preserved in a nondescript by an anonymous Roman businessman. Just to give you an idea, he was on businesses out in Alexandria. He was writing to his pregnant wife. In the letter, he was chit-chatting about this and that, and look at what he says. It's coming up on the screen. He says, by the way, when the baby is born, if it's a girl, just throw it out. Now, that was typical of the culture of that day. So Christianity comes in, and it sweeps the world, even in this kind of a culture. And you wonder, how did it do that? Guys, there had never been anything like this. And so we should look and ask the question today, what was it about that church that made the difference, that changed Roman culture? And by the way, because it changed culture, what else did it change, do you think? Well, Politics is downstream from culture, isn't it? So it changed politics. It changed the nation. Now, what accounts for that kind of power? i just give you another example. I did a little research on this, and this is powerful. I want to use the ancient city of Antioch. How many of you have ever heard of Antioch? If you've read the book of Acts, you've heard of it, or at least you've read it. You may not remember. When the city of Antioch was built, it was built by a guy named Seleucus. He was one of Alexander the Great's generals. And he named it Antioch because his father, his name was Antiochus. And he built this huge wall around it to protect it from outsiders. And he knew it was going to be like many of the cities that were now arising. It was going to be a multi-ethnic city. There were Romans, there were Greeks, and of course there were lots of Jews because it was close to Israel. Is that right? But there weren't just Jews and Romans and Greeks. It was also close to Africa. So there were lots of Africans. It was also close to Asia. So there were Persians. There were Indians. There were even Chinese that lived in Antioch. Now listen, there were very few cities like this that we know of when you study ancient history. There were at least 18 ethnic quarters. Now you say, Shane, why do you say quarters? Well, listen. When Seleucus was building a city, in fact, when the Greco-Roman people were building their cities like this, one thing they knew, that is this, every race, every culture thinks that it's superior to all the others. We're a little bit like that today, aren't we? And they knew that. So when they would build a city in ancient culture, they didn't just build walls around the city, they built walls within the city because they had to protect each ethnic neighborhood from the others. That makes sense? So they built these high walls to protect each other from the different racial groups because they knew that at the drop of a hat, if there were an incident in the marketplace, you know, if somebody stepped on somebody else's robe or somebody insulted each other, listen, the ethnic parties, they would go to war, they'd kill each other. So they had to have walls. What did they need? Listen to me, friend. This was a culture that needed fortresses within fortresses to protect the people. But here's what happens. The gospel comes to Antioch, and look at what it says. This is in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 11 through 13. You can read this on your own later today, but here's what it says. It says, some of them went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus And it says, and the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And so what did they do? It says they sent Barnabas to where? Antioch. And when he arrived, 
And he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And then it goes on. It says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to where? And so for the whole year, Barnabas and Saul, who later became Paul, they met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And what does it say? Let's read this together. It says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, I want for you to get this, guys. Think about this. There were 18 ethnic quarters, and people were coming to Christ across the walls. They were worshiping across the walls. And because of that, if you study archaeology, you'll know, what did they start to do? They started to tear the walls down. Walls are coming down, and the reason that Barnabas was sent and the reason that people in Jerusalem came running to see is because for the first time in the history of the world, they had to call them something other than Jews or Greeks. They had to make up a name for them. Nobody had a word for this because nobody had seen anything like this. Everybody's amazed. By the way, this is why this year, and if you remember back to Vision Weekend, I said our theme is together. Because there is nothing that will bring people together like the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will do that. Not if you truly understand the gospel. In fact, this was the product we produced at the end of January. I actually have these. They're going to be at our welcome booth or welcome table as you leave today. If you want to pick these up, because it just covers lots of information about what the church is doing together and what our theme is. Because as the Lord spoke to me about this year for North Point, I'm just going to give you the vision here. The Lord said, I want your church to be reminded about what the gospel does. The gospel brings people together. By the way, this is why when we talk about things like racial reconciliation or when we talk about the need to say Christians don't have prejudice or Christians don't have bias, this is why I'm all for that. Not because the government says that we should talk about it, not because somebody came up with a concept in social services, no. It's because people coming together is God's idea. Do you know that's true? It's God's idea. So the world has never seen any kind of people who got a hold of a truth that was so powerful. Listen, it relativized their ethnic pride, their cultural ethnocentrism, superiority. They were able to look at all people of other races and other classes, even the most despised, and say, guess what? You're my brother. You're my sister. What was it that caused that? The gospel. Everybody say gospel. So what I want to do is, today, by way of introduction, and next week is, I want you to see ten things that the church did as a result of the gospel that made them so unique. By the way, we cover these ten things in our core 101 that I would invite you to. It's all about being a part of the church. And when you become a part of the church, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not just a believer, but you're a what? You're a belonger which means you're supposed to belong to something bigger than yourself. And you'll begin to see this over the next couple of weeks as we talk about it. Because, you see, if we talk about what do we do now as a church, we've got to talk about what did they do then. And so that's what we're going to look at. So you guys ready to write these down? I'm going to give you five today, and I'm going to give you five next week. Sound good? Here we go. Write these down. Here's the first thing we see that the early church did. Number one, they united into a congregation. 
they united into a congregation. Now, why is this radical? Guys, I just want you to think about this for a minute. Think about how everybody in the world believes, basically, that religion is just a function of your culture, and that's all it is. In fact, people say, you know, I'm a Presbyterian because I'm Scottish. Or people say, I'm Muslim because I'm Bosnian. Or you got Italians who say, you know, I'm Roman Catholic because I come from Italy. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That's how the world sees it. You talk to most atheists and most skeptics, and they'll tell you, well, you only believe in that because of where you were born. That is how the world sees it. But the gospel, the early church, the first Christians come in, and it brings people together in such a way that they can't say that. In fact, Christianity is the only religion that ever does that. In fact, if you go to Acts 13 and you look at the first team of pastors, check this out. I'm just going to tell you, go study this on your own a little later. The first team of pastors that were put together, one guy was called Simeon, called Niger. He was from Africa. He was African. There was another guy, Lucius of Cyrene. He was Tanzanian from North Africa. He was probably brown. There was another guy, Menean, from the family of Herod. He was royalty. He actually grew up with Herod. Somehow, even in Herod's household, he had come to faith in Christ. So he was one of the early pastors. There was Barnabas, who was a Cypriot. There was Paul, who was a Jew and a Roman citizen. What's going on here? There's no word to describe this. Don't you understand? Guys, do you understand the ramifications of what I'm saying? Until this time... If people asked you what you believed, you'd say, well, I'm of the Jewish religion, or I'm of the Greek religion, or I'm of the Roman religion, or I'm of the Indian religion, or I'm of the Chinese religion. Christianity comes along and says, we're putting that to death. Because the gospel says that all human beings are made in God's image. And we all need to be together. And all of a sudden, the world starts to look around at the church, and you know what it says? It says, man... Maybe something supernatural has really happened because we've never seen a religion like this. Write this down. Here's some factors that led to their uniting as a congregation. It was totally inclusive. That's the first thing. Just write that down. Totally inclusive. So profound. People across the cultures, I've said, are becoming friends. They're worshiping together. They're becoming a body. So that they had to say, what can we call this thing? See, it was deeper. They were forced into a truth that was deeper than culture. And suddenly they were forced to admit, maybe there's a reality or a truth that's not culturally constructed. It was totally inclusive. Write this down. Here's what was unique about Christianity. It preached that Jesus was the Son of God, so he alone can accomplish your salvation. Write that down. That's so important. Now listen. There was a historian by the name of Scott Laureate talking about this point that because he's the son of God, only he can accomplish salvation. Look at what he says. He says, the one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness was probably its teaching of the uniqueness of Christ. Watch this. For if Jesus was not a teacher showing the way of salvation, stop right there. You understand, Buddha is a teacher showing the way of salvation. Muhammad, a teacher showing the way of salvation. Jesus says, I am salvation. Jesus says, I've accomplished. Jesus says, I'm not a teacher that's going to show you the way. Jesus says, I am the way. 
Jesus says, I'm not a teacher that's going to show you the truth. He says, I actually am the truth. I'm not going to show you a light. I am the light. And look at what it says. It says, for if Jesus was not a teacher showing the way of salvation, but the Son of God who accomplished salvation, then members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able, they all might be able to share in the salvation because it's made possible through who? Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough to get it. You see what he's saying? He says, because Jesus has done it. God makes no preferences. We're all the same. Turn to somebody near you and say, I'm no better than you. Ready, set, go. Now turn to somebody else and say, hey, you're no better than me. <laughs> you understand? Christianity gave us a truth that broke down the barriers, and this is what we ought to be living. When we think about how the early church was, how do you think you ought to live today? Now, here's the third thing that was so radical and why they united as a congregation. I want you to, I would fail if I didn't mention this, but there was a spiritual power that attended the preaching of the gospel. If you just write that down. There was a spiritual power that is inexplicable. In fact, you just notice this scripture when it says in Acts chapter two, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What were they cut to the heart by? Spiritual power. Don't you see? They were cut to the heart. And it was like God was making an incision in their heart for the Holy Spirit to come in. And once the Holy Spirit came in, people were convicted and they said, what are we going to do? Friends, what should we do? And it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then watch this. What was the result of it? Let's read this together. Acts chapter two. It says, here we go. All the believers were, they were what? Together. Now here's my question. Has God done that for you? How are you with people? Do you understand that knowing that you're connected to other people and knowing that they are you and you are them and that you love them as much as you love yourself, do you understand that's a sign that the Holy Spirit has come in? It's a sign of life. John would put it this way. Notice this scripture. He says, we know that we have passed from death to what? Because we what? Because we love what am I saying? Listen to me, friends. I'm saying if you're a Christian, you should be able to get along with people in a way that nobody else can. What accounted for the church making such a difference? Well, the first is they united into a congregation. For those of you that have not put much thought into uniting into a congregation, listen, you may say, well, I'm a part of the church. I'm a Christian. That's fine, but for you so far, it's only sentiment. Become a belonger. Get involved. Start to make a difference. Because God will use that to change the world. Now here's the second thing that the church did that made such a remarkable difference in Rome. If you just write this down. Scripture tells us that they shared to meet each other's needs. In other words, racism went down, but generosity went up. Now I'm just going to ask you, 
How's your generosity doing? You know, when I was studying history, I love history. I was a history major, and I was studying about the last Roman emperor. He was a pagan. He was not a Christian. He was really irritated about how Christianity was spreading through the empire. And look at what he said. He said, do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Well, everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the Jews take care of the Jewish poor. The Greeks take care of the Greeks poor. The Egyptians, they take care of the Egyptian poor. But the Christians take care of everybody's poor. What is it that changed the world? It was this. Friends, what's going to make a difference in our world? Giving gladly. (laughs) Saying God I recognize I'm not the owner of what you've given me. I'm just a steward of what you've given me. Therefore, I will regularly and consistently give it away. I will give it away. Guys, I can't even begin to tell you the benefits of letting the Holy Spirit come into your life and surrender the things that you own to realize you don't actually own them. You're a steward or a manager of everything you have. And one day you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? We'll all stand before God and he'll say that. If you ask me why you should be generous, I could give you ten reasons right now biblically. Generosity honors God. Generosity draws me closer to God, the Bible says. Generosity makes me more like Jesus. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave Generosity is the cure for materialism. People say, man, I'm a shopaholic, and Lord Jesus, help me to get over it. And then the Lord whispers, give away that $500 you just got in a bonus. And you say, oh, I could never do that. God is trying to get you over materialism. You've prayed for it. He's telling you how to do it. You just refuse to do it. Don't you see? That's the only way. Generosity demonstrates your faith. Second Corinthians, this is not in your notes, but he says, God will make you rich in every way so that you can always give freely. And through your giving, it will cause many people to have thanks to God. Generosity reveals your character. Generosity brings God's blessing. Generosity, the scripture says, increases your own happiness. How many of you caught on to that, by the way? You've started giving and you've noticed, man, this feels good. Anybody catch on to that? Yeah, several of you. Scripture literally says that generosity brings God's protection. Generosity will be rewarded. Guys, I could go on and on and on. But here's what happens. Racism goes down when people understand the gospel. Generosity goes up. Let me give you the third reason that the gospel exploded. You ready? Write this down. It says that they worshipped where? In temple courts. Meaning they worshipped publicly. Their faith was public. In fact, let's look at what Ephesians says about the first Christians. He says, watch this, he says, for he, meaning Jesus himself, is our peace. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Now stop right there. Do you see this theme going on? What was his purpose? To create for himself what? One new humanity. One new group of people. And so what does Paul go on to say? He says, consequently, you were no longer foreigners and strangers, 
but you are fellow citizens with God's people and you are members of God's household. Now listen to me. Being a citizen is a public thing. This is why we do membership at North Point Church because membership is biblical. It's godly. It's practical. It is the practical application of a biblical truth. And it allows us to say, God, I'm joining in. I'm not just a believer, I am a belonger. And in the most practical way, I begin to say to you, and you begin to say, listen, we are living for something together. We are proclaiming something together. We're not just consuming. Do you realize, by the way, the difference we can make in the kingdom? This is why when we did our annual report, I had you commit to three things. Do you remember our commitments together? I said, this year together, make a commitment in 23 to bring three people. Share your testimony with them. Share the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life. Bring them to church. Believe me, they need the Lord. Be bold. And we said the second commitment that you make is that you find your place, your unique contribution to the church that you make a point this year does not go by without you jumping in and saying, I'm in, man. I'm joining in. And that you learn to be a giver. I'm telling you, do those three things, God will change your life. Now listen, we will change the world. We will certainly change this valley if churches begin to live under that kind of unification. The problem is, I'm going to tell you what, people today have no concept of citizenship. Let me tell you, many of you come here today, I'm just going to step on your toes for just a minute. Is that okay? Here comes the offense. Get your connection cards out. Get ready to write to me. Here we go. Many of you come to church and you see this as a lecture hall. That's it. You come to church and you see it as a social club. You've come to get your fix. You want to get a little inspired. And by the way, if you're here, and especially if you're not a believer and you've come here to get inspired and you're curious, God bless you. That's okay to come for that. I'm never going to point you out for that. But there comes a place where under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you realize that it's more than that. This is not just a lecture hall. This is not just a social club. But we begin to give the church the attention that it deserves in our lives. God says, listen, God says, it's your duty. But it's not just your duty, it's also a beauty. You will learn to enjoy it as you begin to commit yourself to the kingdom. Notice this scripture, it says, in him, talking about the church, the whole building is joined together, and what does it do? It rises, that's public. It rises. So I can't encourage you enough to get connected and get involved. By the way, this is why at North Point, I'm just gonna remind you, because I haven't given you an update in a while, but for many of you that were here last year, you remember we started this campaign called Come and See. And I mention this a lot just because I don't want you to forget or think we haven't, uh, we haven't done anything on this. We're just still waiting on the city to, uh, to approve the plans, but I did find out there is movement. There is movement between our architect and the city right now going back and forth. But the reason why we're renovating our campus through this come and see thing is because we want the neighborhoods and the church and Fresno to say, this is a place where I want to come and see the difference that Jesus can make into my life. And so we're going to build it up and renovate it.
This is why, by the way, we want to turn the campus into an evangelistic workshop. This is why Pastor Andrew is constantly putting together these evangelism workshops. You know, I'm wearing a wristband today that uh, when you go to this evangelism workshop on May 11th, how to share your faith, you get these because this is actually a little tool that teaches you how to share the gospel. And it just reminds you when you're talking to your friends how simple it is to communicate the hope of faith. Guys, I can't encourage you enough to get involved in learning how to do that because you need to bring people to Jesus out of the joy of your heart and what he's doing for you. Hey, by the way, wasn't it cool to pray over all those kids that are going to uh, Baja? Wasn't that awesome? Check this out. This summer, there's another group of families and children that are going to go all the way to Poland and they're doing ministries together. I'm excited about that. In fact, I just uh, draw your attention to the slide up on the screen because I want to give you the opportunity to participate in this mission. As you know, going to Poland is a lot more expensive than going to uh, Baja. And uh, these families, because they're going as families, because they're little kids, parents have to go. And I, I, I don't know about you, but has anybody traveled internationally? You know how much airfare can be. And so what we're doing is if you know you can't go, but you want to participate with these families, on your connection card today, I just want you to write letter. And then what you're going to do by doing that is you're going to give permission to these families to send you a support letter for these kids that are going to say, hey, I'll give 20 bucks to this. I'll give 50 bucks to this. I'll give $5,000 to this. I don't know what your means are, but you're just saying, you know what? I'll give and I'll help these families and these kids get over to Poland to start learning what it means to be missionaries. Isn't that a great thing to be given to if you're going to give? So I just encourage you, write that down letter on your connection card. Guys, this is why, you know, keep reminding you, we've been talking all month long about our first responders. And how all month long we've been honoring them. But, you know, it's not just our first responders, but we actually have a, a strategy that, you know, in the month of March, we're acknowledging first responders. But in the month of April, we're going to be acknowledging our friends and coworkers and neighbors. In the month of May, we're going to be acknowledging, guess who? Moms. In June, we're going to be acknowledging who? Dads, why? Because we just want to say to different groups of people, you're welcome at church, Come. We just want you to be a part. Why? Because Ephesians says, in him the building is joined together and rises. You know, there was a conversation between Barbara. I don't know how many, how many remember 2020, that show? Any of you remember that? Okay. Remember, uh, they, these are two old timers. It'll age you to know if you remember these guys. But do you remember Barbara Walters and Sam Donaldson? Hello, I am Barbara Walters. And I'm Sam Donaldson, you know, and they did it. And we are, or you're listening to 2020. And they were having this conversation, and she said something really interesting. I'll never forget this. She said, it was a conversation about faith and society, and she said, listen, a person has a right to live any way that makes them happy as long as he doesn't interfere with others who are doing the same thing. And I'm listening to that, and again, I'll just repeat to you what she said. She said, a person has a right to live any way they want to that makes them happy as long as they don't interfere with others doing the same thing. And I'll give her one thing. That is, that is what we believe today. A person has a right to do that, but just don't push it on others. But I'm going to tell you, what she said was very revealing to how we think today in our culture. Because what she was saying to Sam Donaldson is, hey, there's only one high call. What's the highest call of your life? Don't keep somebody else from doing what makes them happy. 
that's the highest call of your life. And I just want to say, I'm listening to that, and I want to say, are you serious? That's your one absolute? Really? Now, if you don't already see the problem with that, I'm going to challenge you to think. Listen to me. Modern culture tells you that if you're a Christian... If you're one of these born-again types, they'll say, well, that's wonderful, and that's okay for your private life, but don't try and get that out into your public life. Don't try and have an effect on morality. Don't try and have an effect on the values and the customs and the norms of culture. But see, you hear what they're saying. Here's the problem with that. Don't you see, by them saying that to you, they're actually doing it to you? By them saying, don't impose your beliefs on people, they're imposing their view of religion on you. Why is that? What do they believe? They believe that all religion is relative. That it's only for your private life. That you shouldn't use it in the public arena. And by telling you, you can't spread what you believe, they're spreading what they believe. And you're believing it. And friends, some of you go to work every day and you think you're not supposed to convince people to become a Christian. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, and I mean what I say. You're actually supposed to convince them. You're supposed to share with them your witness or your testimony. What has made you believe? Let me tell you something. The problem with the way of modern thinking is that there's no integrity to it. Modern people don't believe in a truth that fits every aspect of life. But I'm going to tell you something. If you have a truth that fits every aspect of your life, you should share it. You should tell people about it. Jesus said, you are the salt of what? The earth. He says, but if you lose your saltiness, what are you good for? You are the light of the world. If you're not shining your light, what are you good for? And because the first church let their light shine, what does it say? It says back in Acts 2, it says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How big should the church get? Wrong question. Here's the question. Should anybody be left out? Nobody should be left out. Again, that's why I say go to things like this workshop. What is it that made the church so appealing? Let me give you two more. We'll be done. Write this down. Number four, they met in small groups in homes for fellowship. They met in small groups in home for fellowship. In other words, what I'm saying is fellowship was intentional to the early church. People who seemingly have nothing in common, they don't have a common culture, they don't have a common personality, they don't have a common temperament, and yet these are people who are in each other's houses every night. It said they met daily. Listen, they couldn't get enough of each other. They were always coming together. They were hungry for each other. Do you understand? Regular life was an interruption to church. In fact, the reason why the word together is not so much what they did as what they were is because it says whenever they got together, everyone was filled with awe. Now, have you experienced that kind of fellowship within the church? Now, here's what's so interesting. Some of you, over the years, you've been coming to church, and you've been subjected to pastors like me who subtly or not so subtly have put guilt trips on people. For example, have you ever heard somebody do this on Christmas or on Easter? They say, hey, why don't you come to all the meetings? They come on Easter, and it's like, hey, why don't you come to church every week? 
Hey, why don't you come to this? Hey, why don't you come to that? And, you know, we're sort of laying it on them. I'm going to tell you, never see that question in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to urge people, but you don't see the apostles doing it. You don't see the apostles saying, hey, why don't you come out more often? Do you know why? Because you couldn't stop them from getting together. People wanted to be together. They were hungry for it. It's a sign of life. Friends, when a baby is born, how do you know it's alive? What does it do? It cries. You don't tell a baby, cry, honey. Come on, cry. No, if the baby's alive, it cries. I'm going to tell you, got Jesus in your heart. You want to be around other people that got Jesus in their heart. You say, well, I'm a believer and I don't feel that way. Well, then you've gone dead. You need to stoke the flame. Because it's not just a duty, it's a beauty. They come together as a response to life. Again, it's why, it's why I said at the beginning, when you hear about small groups or the things that are going on, you connect not because it's something to do, but you connect because you say, man, this is vital to my life. Last thing here, if you just write this down, fifth thing. What is it about the early church that changed the world? They celebrated communion. Write that down, they celebrated communion. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that they frequently remembered Christ's sacrifice. It's what motivated them. It's what moved them. In fact, whenever they were getting dull in their faith, whenever they were starting to, you know, backslide and go back and walk in the flesh and do those things, they thought, remember, Jesus went on the cross for me. I got to tell you, this is a powerful thing. Watch this. The scripture says, the scripture says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what I've been doing the last several weeks in my own quiet time? I went ahead and bought myself a bunch of extra communion elements, and every day at my quiet time, I'm taking communion. Just as a reminder of, Lord, I do this for you. I live today for you. Why? Guys, it's so important to remember what Jesus did for you. That's what will motivate you. Why? Let me give you some quick things, then we'll be done. If you just write this down. First thing in communion, I never get to teach on communion, so let me teach on it for just a minute. Number one, we take communion because it connects the present to the past. It connects the present to the past. Let's go back to that night, for example. What was that night? What kind of night was it? Anybody know? What were they celebrating? Passover. It was a Jewish festival called Passover. Passover meal. And usually when the kids had a question for their Jewish parents, they'd say, Mom, Dad, why is this night so different from all the other nights? And the parents would say, because it's referring back to the Exodus, the great liberation which God brought Israelites out of Egypt. And the kids would say, well, what happened at Passover? And they'd say, well, you see, the Israelites were slaves. And the king of Egypt Pharaoh would not liberate them. Therefore, God sent an angel to Egypt. Now, I want for you to get this. The angel of death would come to Egypt and kill the firstborn because what was God doing? God was actually sending judgment scrolled forward in history. What was God doing? On a mini scale, he was bringing the divine judgment that he's going to bring to everybody on judgment day. When God is going to put everything to rights, and because of what Egypt had done, 
God allowed a sort of scroll forward on that judgment day. And the Israelites were human beings like the Egyptians. And they were subject to divine judgment just like anybody else. So how were they going to survive the angel of death coming to kill? Here's what God said to them. God said, in every home, Israelite families must come together and eat a meal. And you need to slay a lamb, and you need to eat the lamb. And then you need to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your homes and take shelter under the blood of the lamb. And if the lamb dies, everyone in the home will live. Now, i got to tell you, it was so cool. Just last week, I was with our kids' core group, and we were teaching our kids just this principle of Passover. Take a look at this crowd. This is our kids' discipleship program, Kids' Core. And I was there with my third grader. And our director of elementary school, Donna, was teaching how they would do this. And if you just take a look at this visual, she was demonstrating for the kids that what they would do is they would cover the doorposts with the blood. And they would say to the people of Israel, this day is to be a memorial for you. And you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. Well, on the night Jesus was betrayed, it was Passover night, immediately Jesus begins to change the meal. He got up and he starts talking about the bread. And instead of saying, this bread is the bread of our affliction from when we were in Egypt, he says, this bread is my body broken for you, it's my affliction. And he took the cup, you'll have cups of wine, and he says, this wine is my blood to be spilled for you. What's he saying? He's saying, get this, you got the bread, and you got the blood, where's the lamb? Jesus says, I'm the lamb. Isaiah puts it this way, it says that he was oppressed and afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before them, he was silent. He did not open his mouth. Who is this? It's Jesus. Therefore, on that night, Jesus Christ is saying, my death is that climactic event toward which everything in the history of salvation is moving. Listen, every sacrifice, every liberation, every prophet, every priest, every king, every deliverer, Every religious thing, he says, has all been pointing to me. He says, so when you Christians get together and you regularly, you get the bread and you get the wine, he says there's a direct connection between what's happening now and what's happening on that night. This is what we teach our children. Parents, I just ask you, is this what you teach your children? Do you do this at home? I'd encourage you to. Why? Because Jesus says, this is my body. And why is that so powerful? Write this down. It connects your soul to God. It connects your soul to God. Why? Because Jesus says, this is my body. And he puts something in your hand. He says, this is my blood. And he puts a cup in your hand. And one thing is very clear. God becomes accessible to you in your hands. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And guys, our kids, we did this Passover night and taught them communion. And just look at their souls connect to God. It was the coolest thing. And you just see God begin to work in the lives of, and, and I just encourage you adults, do this with your kids at home. Third, write this down. Why do we do it? Because it connects the individual to the community. Now I'm going to take you back to point one. It's because of his shed blood 
and broken body that the scripture says now. Let's read this together. Everybody ready? Say, I'm ready if you're ready. Here we go. It says, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is now no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, anything that divides you, you need to put it away. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. He says, now you have fellowship. Because it's he alone that accomplished salvation. What should cause divisions among you? Nothing. How many of you are holding on to unforgiveness for people? You don't have to show me your hands, but rhetorically, what do you need to do with that? How many of you are allowing a root of bitterness just to hang on into the heart? What do you need to do with that? Then finally, write this down. It connects your life story to the future when you do communion. Because for wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, in fact, the scripture says, here's the end of the book of Revelation. We'll just read this together, then we'll be done. Notice this. This is powerful. It says, then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Everybody together. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. It will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I am making everything new. What's he describing here? He's describing a supper. When the new heavens and the new earth comes, he says, it's a supper. All your pain is gone. All your crying is gone. All your tears are gone. What he's describing is complete satiation. Your deepest longings, the deepest longings of your heart get completely satisfied and you will be filled. It is a supper. It is the supper. So, guys, do you realize right now the church, what we're experiencing, these are the hors d'oeuvres. You get that? But God says supper's coming. But I need you to start diving in now, God says. God's whispering to you, I am unconditionally committing to you. What are you going to do with me? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, help us like never before to be people that live for you. Help us, Father, to love you in profound ways. Help us to be generous and to give, to serve, to love. Help us, Father, to uh, contribute. And, Father, let us be the people that you've called us to be. Because, God, we want to see our world changed. We want to see you do great and powerful things that would change culture, that would change lives. Lord, it just begins with us individually, so help us. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I would just encourage you to pray this prayer in your heart. Jesus, I want to know you. Come into my life and forgive me of my sin. Be my Savior and be my Lord. And I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.